Hosea chapter 9. Now, we began chapter 9 last week, and uh, in chapter 9, at least at the onset of this chapter, it is the prophet Hosea who reproves the Israelites. He rebukes the Israelites for their sacrifices and their celebrations on their threshing floors and wine presses, as we saw there in the first six verses last week. But there they were in their threshing floors and in their wine presses, by which they credited to idols, just as the heathen did, the praise for their prosperity. They were worshiping idols. They were giving the idols the praise, not the God who gave them life, not the God who was the the real source of their prosperity, the real source of what they had. And because of this, what God promises them, and again, it's through the prophet. You know, oftentimes I'll let you know, God is speaking through Hosea. Other times, God is using Hosea to speak to, uh, to his people. And, it's, but what, and, and Hosea shares from his own heart uh, as we saw in the first six verses. But their promised famine and their promised exile, I think I said last time that you know, it wasn't a threat, it was a promise. Because they had been given so many opportunities, so many opportunities to repent of their sins, to repent and to return to their God, to humble themselves before the Lord, So famine and exile was already going to be part of what they were going to have to endure in a land where they would be polluted and they would be unclean, a foreign land, the land of Assyria, or wherever the Assyrians would take them, they would go there and they would lack the means of worshiping the God of their fathers or even observing in holy seriousness the feasts that the Lord had prescribed and appointed for them. And again, you know, you can go back to the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 23, and all of, the, all of the feasts that the Lord had, had, had appointed for Israel to follow. It was all for them. And, and, and as we studied the feast a couple of years ago in detail, everything about every feast from Passover on was about Yeshua. It was about Jesus. It was about the Messiah. So when they began to take their eyes off of the Lord, they began to put their eyes on the, on the gods of the, of, of the pagan nations. When they wanted to be like them, much like those who may want to have what God has for them, but at the same time be like the world, today, well, it's going to fall short. And furthermore, when you get back to Israel and what happened to them in the time of Hosea, they would fall speedily to Assyria. 
Assyria was going to come and actually, uh, with the sword, destroy many of the people, and the rest would be taken into captivity. And if those who happened to escape would get away from Assyria, they would end up in Egypt, who, they, who Israel was trying to be uh, allied with. They would end up in Egypt, and they would die and be buried in Egypt. And then the homeland itself would become desolate. So that is where we have been so far, at least in the, in the ninth chapter. So as we enter now into this next section of the chapter, we find that the Lord is describing now the time, a, 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 a very short time, but he's describing the time of Israel's faithfulness and his delight to choose them as his peculiar people. Now, in verse 10, it says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. Now, most of us should know that grapes don't really grow in the wilderness. You know, if, if you just have a plain old wilderness or a desert, they just don't grow there. So this was significant for the Lord to say, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. Something that was good, something that was refreshing, something that was somewhat of a miracle, if you will. And if, you, and if you studied Israel enough from the very beginning, you realize that they were a miracle. They were a miracle of God. They were so much a miracle that God said to them, listen, don't, don't think that there's anything special about you. I didn't choose you because you were greater in number. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest army in the, in the world, because you, you weren't. I didn't choose you except for this one thing, because I love you. I chose you because I love you and, chosen, and, and have chosen you to be a light. Now think about us. Think about you and me. Think about how God chose us. He didn't choose us because we were so wonderful and so beautiful and so handsome and so smart. Some of us think, you know, the, the Lord chose us because of that. But he didn't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us. And even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And by the way, the ungodly isn't the person sitting next to you. We were the ungodly. So when he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, he says, I saw your fathers as the, the first ripe in the fig tree at her, at her first time. The, the, the ripeness of that, the, the, uh, of a fig at the very onset of, of its maturing process was, was probably the best time to pick figs. That's how he saw Israel, at the bestest and the juiciest. I made bestest up. So that, that was it. He says, this, this is how I found you. This is how I loved you. This is how I chose you. But immediately there is that word, but. But they went. But they went 
to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame. And their abominations were according as they loved. So here was now another punishment coming. God, for just a moment, just for this brief breath of time, mentions their faithfulness. You were faithful to me. And then immediately, in the course of time, when you think about time, it was almost immediate that they took their eyes off of the Lord and put their eyes on other things. They put their eyes on the, on the gods of the other nations. They put their eyes on the kings of the other nations. And we said, we want, to be, we want to be just like them. So another punishment was coming, but, but God was trying to remind them, listen, that's not where you were. But, I've ha- but, but he's sending this punishment. He's given them the opportunity to turn, and they're not turning. So he sends them this punishment that would be tragic. It would be appalling. The people would be cast away and separated from the Lord. Now what's tragic about that is, think about your relationship to Jesus Christ right this minute. Think about your relationship and your fellowship, because you, can't, you really can't separate that. We try sometimes. When we sin, we're breaking fellowship, not relationship. But even when we break fellowship, man, it it doesn't feel good, does it? And then when we claw our way more into the world or more into a sin, what are we doing? It isn't God who's separating himself from us. We're separating ourselves from him. And does it feel good? Not at all. So they're going to be cast away and separated from the Lord. But it's not the Lord so much as it is them already having chosen to do that. The Lord does withdraw. But never so far that they can find him when they repent. So take note that when the Lord called Israel... And founded it as a nation in the desert. Because that's, you know, when you think about it, that's where they were, they were founded. Abraham, coming out of Ur of the Chaldees and travels all the way to, he doesn't even know where he's going, but God leads him and brings him into the land of promise. And then Lot, his, his, his nephew, you know, they, they have struggles with their with their shepherds and their, their livestock people, people uh, keepers and all that. And then they all say, okay, listen, we, we're going to have to split up. You, you choose which way you want to go, Lot, and which way does Lot go? Lot goes to, you know, where, where it's green, right? Sodom. And where does Abraham go? The desert. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, growing up in the desert. Where did we find the Lord? We found the Lord in our desert. In our wilderness experience. So when the Lord called Israel and founded it as a nation in the desert, his heart was filled with great joy and gladness because he was going to provide for them what they needed. He was going to make the land the way that, he, he, that, that it would be able to, uh, to produce. And think about this. Let me just jump ahead a whole bunch of thousands of years. After 1948, after the rebirth of the nation of Israel, 
Israel became a fruitful land again. For nearly 2,000 years, it was dead. It was that desert. And yet the prophets had prophesied that the land would be fruitful again. It is fruitful today. Not just because the Israelis are, you know, yeah, they have what God has given them, but it was the Lord that made that land fruitful again. So he was filled with great joy and gladness as he, as he raises this, this great nation up and he rejoiced over Abraham, over Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and all the other true believers who had consistently and faithfully followed God's holy word. He was as, delight as uh, delighted as a man finding fresh grapes in the desert or that early fruit on a fig tree. It, it was certainly the Lord's delight to choose them as his particular people in Egypt. Don't forget what we read year. well, I was going to say years ago, it was just a a couple of months ago, back in chapter 2. It, we haven't been in Hosea years. Okay, I'm just, i got to remember you know, myself. You know, I'm thinking sometimes I'm, I'm in this book too long. Hosea 2, verse 15. It says, And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Accor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And, he, and he's providing this, this hope for them. Think, of, think just of, the, of the, the name of the, the national anthem of Israel today, of modern Israel, Hatikva. Hatikva, the hope. The hope. It's all about hope. God gave them hope. As long as they kept their eyes on Him. But His heart, as I said, was soon saddened as the people soon turned away from Him. They broke their covenant promise to follow him. And they consistently rebelled and disobeyed his word. The turning point for Israel could be traced back to the tragic event that took place at Baal Peor, as it is mentioned here in verse 10. It was there that the, Isra that the Israelites first turned to the false god Baal or Baal and began to commit immorality. They began to fall into those sexual sins that, that were connected to the, the, the false worship of Baal. In Numbers 25, and, and we're going to go to Numbers here in just a moment, but uh, Numbers 25 describes what happens there in Baal, or I should say in uh, Baal Peor. Now, I'm going to ask this question to you because I want you to think not only about their time, but about our time when I ask this. But you might ask the question, how bad, how bad could it have been? How bad could it have been that they were now worshiping false gods and committing uh, immorality and sexual sins in, in, uh, in, in their new type of worship. Well, I just want to read a small portion of this account. Let's go to Numbers 25 and, and, and listen to the first five verses. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Now, they had already been warned, and they had already been told that they were not to intermingle, they were not to mix with the other nations. That was very clear coming out of Egypt. 
especially with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. Baal, the, the, the name Baal is really just uh, the name for Lord. Uh, it's a Phoenician word of, uh, of origin. Baal means Lord. Peor is a, a name for mountain or hill. And you know that they always worshipped on hills. They always worshipped on high places, as it were. And so Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. You remember what my question was? How bad could it have been that they were doing what they were doing? Now we're beginning to find out how bad it was that the Lord's anger was kindled against his people that he tells Moses take the heads of the people, the leaders of the people, leading them into these things. And hang them up before the Lord against the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. You think that's serious? That is deathly serious. It was there in Shittim that the Israelites first turned to the false god Baal and began to commit immorality with the surrounding nations and, summed, and it summed up this way. They committed idolatry, they committed licentiousness, which means that, you know, all kinds of lusts, license, you know, we get a word license, you know, the you feel like you have the freedom to do whatever you want. So they were just having the freedom to do whatever they wanted with, these, uh, uh, with this new uh, form or mode of worship, as it were. They committed idolatry in it. They were committing licentiousness, uh, the lust, the, the physical lusts and, 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 and all, and physical and spiritual adultery, all in complete violation of the laws and commandments of the Lord. So they began to worship sex along with the Moabites' false gods. That was part of the worship experience with, with these false uh, deities and with these pagan uh, nations. All the nations, not just some of them, all of them. Now, you could actually draw a line, and we're not going to do it tonight, but you can actually draw a line from, from this particular time in the book of Numbers, all the way back to Genesis and all the way back to a man named Nimrod. All the way back when nations were made in the plains of Shinar. And they, with their one language, began to build a tower in opposition and in defiance to the one true God and they began to build this tower in defiance against the one true God. And of course, the Lord came down, confounded their languages, and of course the nation spread to where they went, but what they, what they went with was that defiance and the desire to worship other gods 
than the God who had created them. So they began to worship sex along with the Moabite gods. In this case, it was the god Chemosh, Chemosh, which was their national deity. So consider this very well. Look at the next few verses. It was, uh, it became a, it went to a specific incident. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman. So there were the Moabites and the Midianites. So he brought a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel. Now, the idea here is he's bringing this, this Midianite woman who was a, uh, a pagan worshiper. More than likely, she was a temple prostitute or, uh, you know, a, a, a um, false uh, deity uh, prostitute or harlot because that's what they had, you know, to... Uh, fulfill their uh, their part their their way of worshiping. We've talked about this already, but uh, it says he brought unto his brethren a Midianite in the sight of all the congregation of Israel. Like in the, again, I, I use the word defiance, but but just to stick it in the face of Moses and of the people who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, weeping because they had defiled the law. They had defiled the things that God had given them because they had already fallen into this false worship. And when Phinehas, or Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, so Phinehas being the grandson of Aaron, the priest, saw it. When he saw this, he rose up. I mean, it was, you can, you can practically see in this, this person, he was just fed up. I've had enough of this sin. And he rose up from among the congregation and he took a javelin in his hand. He wasn't in the Olympics. But he took a javelin anyway. And he went after the men of Israel into the tent. And he thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. The plague that was taking place because they were defiling more than likely, this was happening right there in the tabernacle, defiling it. The, it, just, it just outright in the presence of Moses and, and the congregation who were weeping because as a nation they had failed God. And yet when this happened, the plague was stopped. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000, 24,000 people. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Was it a big deal? Yes, it was. It was a big, it was big enough deal for God to take 24,000 of them and judge them with execution. Not just some plague of disease, not just leprosy, took their lives. God can do that because he's God. 
because he's God, because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's true, and he's just. People get in the face all the time in our day and time. They get in the face of God all the time. How can a, a loving God do these things? Well, we make, it, we make it seem like if that's all he is, is a loving God whose hands should be tied so that we can do what we want to do without any fear of reproach. That is why the world is in such a mess as it is. And, by the way, that is why the church is in the mess that it's in. Because we put this aside. We've closed it to hear what the Buddhists have to say. Because maybe we can learn something from them. Or maybe the Hindus. Oh, we can learn a lot from yoga. So we, 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 now we have Christian yoga. You might as well call it Christian demonism. Because if you study yoga, you realize something. The kundalini spirit of yoga is all about serpent power. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like serpents, man. I don't, I don't like things that crawl. But that's just me. I mean, you might like them. Okay, I can go to the zoo, and as long as they're back behind glass, I'm fine. But I know one thing. And I'll be honest with you. Christian yoga is a blasphemy. Against the truth of God's word. You want to exercise? Go to the gym. Whew, okay. Let me catch my breath. So as serious as this was, it didn't change the fact that from that point on, the Israelites would gradually descend into the worship of sex and the false gods of the world. It's a combination that goes together. And it was for this reason that the Lord pronounced his coming judgment and punishment upon the people. Because of their immoral lifestyle and false worship, they would suffer through six specific punishments. The first being the vanishing of the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel would vanish. Look at verse, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 9. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. Their glory. Fly away like a bird from the birth, and from the womb, and from the conception. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord. What will thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. First of all, let's deal with the glory of Ephraim. Remember that Ephraim or Ephraim 
was just another name given to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim was the largest uh, tribe in the northern kingdom of the ten tribes that were there. So they were pretty much the, uh, the more recognizable of, of all of them from that standpoint. And the, it's, it says that the glory of Ephraim would fly away like a bird. I mean, it, meaning that the population of Israel would be significantly diminished. The people were the glory of Israel. The people were the glory. But when they started to die out or when they were starting to, to be, actually, you know, well, judged, and their numbers were diminishing, the glory was, was fading away. You remember when, when they were all in the, in the wilderness experience and they built the, the tabernacle according to the, you know, to the plans that God had given them, the, the blueprints as it were. And they set, up their, they set up their tribes to surround the tabernacle from all directions so that they all faced when God came and he came down upon the tabernacle, they all could see him. But the fact of the matter is, because they were so in fear of God in, this, in the right way, in a worshipful way, that when he came, his glory really covered them all. And their numbers would increase. And their power would increase. For when they submitted humbly to the Lord, God used them in their pursuit of the promised land. But now they were being judged and the survivors, even the survivors would dwindle due to them being exiled to a foreign nation. And verse 11, when we look at verse 11, It suggests that their numbers would dwindle so much that it would be as though they were, there were no births, no pregnancies or conceptions within the various families in exile. Their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth, from the womb, and from the conception. From every possible way, they would have no increase. Their glory would fly from birth, it would fly from the womb, it would fly away from conception. And then as verse 12 states, even if families brought up children, they would soon grieve over their deaths due to the poverty and disease of slavery. Look at verse 12. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. And then verse 13, though, diff though difficult to translate from the Hebrew, it offers a contrast between Ephraim's pros uh, prosperous past with its humiliating and its shameful future. Let me read it. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, what, what, uh, what the prophet is saying is, as I, as I looked toward Tyre on the coast of the Mediterranean, as I looked toward Tyre, and it would be right next to Ephraim or Ephraim's uh, uh, portion there in the north, they would look toward there because uh, it was on whose borders Israel lay, Ephraim was beautiful in situation as a fruitful tree. Remember that the name Ephraim means fruitful. 
And yet, with all of his fruitfulness, his children shall only be brought up to be slain. Notice again, verse 13. Ephraim, the fruitful, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place. Yeah, it's a pretty nice place there, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Well, when they're brought to the murderer, what's going to happen? Their numbers are going to diminish. Their children are going to be slain. I want you to go, go forward to Hosea 13. Just go a couple of chapters forward. Hosea 13. And once again, and, and of course we'll come back to this later, but in Hosea 13, verse 16, it says, Samaria shall become desolate. Now Samaria was the, 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 the capital of the northern kingdom, right? So it says, Samaria shall become desolate, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, and their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. This doesn't sound good. In fact, it sounds horrible. It sounds terrible. It sounds tragic. Is it any wonder then that as terrible as the judgment would be, that barrenness would be a blessing and not a curse as suggested in verse 14? Look at verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what will thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. Give them, I mean, the whole idea there is to say that barrenness itself would be better than bringing children into the world now by these very same people. That's painful to read. So, so when we deal with sin from the scriptures, and I ask the question, how bad can it be? It's pretty bad. And God deals with it. What, what I'm trying to drive with that question is this. And I, and I think I, we, we probably did it then, last week as well. But God never changes. Where do we give, get, give people the idea that, oh, well, God's not like he was before. He was one way in the Old Testament, he's one way in the New Testament. No, 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 you're missing the whole point. God never changes. He's immutable. He is... What you have to remember about him is he is holy, holy, holy. That's number one. Isaiah chapter 6. That's what Isaiah heard the angels say before this, his throne in that vision. The angels cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is righteous. He is just. He is true. Is he love? Is God love? Yes, of course he is. Is he merciful? Yes. Is he gracious? Of course he is. But he is above all holy. He is above his creation. We have to respect that about God. And I think we should respect it about Jesus, too. 
We, we get into this, this idea that, you know, you know this, there's a buddy system here. Well, the way I look at it is this. It's not so much a buddy system. What we have to look at is that we're his children, and he's going to love his children. We're his servants. Well, he's going to take care of his servants. What else are we to the, to the Lord? We're his people. But because he brought us out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of despair into hope and love, folks, we should worship him in spirit and in truth. We should worship him in fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We really want to understand God. We need to fear him but with the proper way of fearing. So it would be merciful not to have children in this particular case, and this is what verse 14 is saying. And surely those who lived to see what the Assyrian soldiers did to pregnant women and little children agreed that Hosea's prayer had come from a heart broken by certain foreknowledge of what lay ahead. The Assyrians were cruel, and cruel doesn't even say what they really were. They were dastardly. They were evil in their treatment of women and children. But now, as we go on, the people would bear the hatred of God because of their dreadful wickedness. The people would bear the hatred of God. Look at verse 15. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. And we'll talk about this love-hate thing here in just a moment. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them for the wickedness of their doings. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters. Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit, yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away. Now, we hear the heart of Hosea in that verse, verse 17. My God will cast them away, because they did not hearken unto him. And they shall be wonders among the nations. He's speaking to the readers of this prophecy. To you and to me. The fullness of the evil that, were, uh, that they were involved in was, was their chief guilt. That was the, 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 the thing. The, the fullness of that wickedness was their chief guilt. Their chief sin. And that wickedness was linked to Gilgal. Now, we were introduced to Gilgal back in chapter 4, in verse 15, where it says, Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Bethaven, Bethaven being the house of, of, uh, of vanity, uh, neither go ye up to Bethaven, nor swear the Lord liveth. Uh, we studied that a while back as well. But if you remember, the people were not to go to Gilgal 
or to Bethaven to swear unto the Lord because in so doing, if they swore unto the Lord going up to Gilgal or to Bethaven, they would be polluting his name for the wicked things uh, or, or for the things that they were doing in wickedness. God is trying to help them. God is trying to tell them, don't go do that because I'm going to have to judge you for it. You're over there worshiping me and using my name and blah, 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 but you're living this horrid lifestyle. And he's telling them, don't do this. He's trying to help them out. And then there's one other thing that needs to be considered about Gilgal. And this was the scene of Israel's first stubborn refusal to obey God's authority. That was in Gilgal. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But to build up to it, there's a scene of this stubborn refusal in rejecting God and wanting to choose a king other than him. So before we get to Gilgal, let's go to 1 Samuel 8 and go to Ramah. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. The time of the judges. Before Israel had a king. A human king. Because they already had a king. The Lord God was their king. And then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want a king to judge us. Uh, you know, I oftentimes wonder, you know, what's wrong with these people? You want a king to judge you? Kind of like we were, we were looking at uh, the scriptures on, on Sunday about the people that were telling Pilate, you know, crucify him. His blood is on us. Wow. And they just condemned themselves. It's kind of like one of those duh moments, you know. But you see, th th this is what's wrong when, when we fail to listen and obey God. We start, we start losing it up here and in here. And it gets really bad. They, 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 we, we want a king just like everybody. We want them to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. He went to God and he prayed. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. But I can imagine Samuel looking up and saying, What? You really want me to go ahead and do this? But notice what God says to him. For they have not rejected thee but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods so do they also unto thee so go up to chapter 11 now in 1 Samuel verses 14 and 15 and notice where all of this takes place then said Samuel to the people come and let us go to Gilgal 
Which, by the way, uh, the word Gilgal comes from a, from a Hebrew word which means wheel, a wheel. So what, when you think about a wheel, what, you know, what just keeps coming over and over and over again, just back and forth, it continues just to be the same. I mean, they just, they get into a, uh, and by the way, when you read the book of Judges, you, you see something, somewhat of the wheel as well. What is that? It, it's like they, they go through this whole uh, circular motion. You know, they, they sin, you know, they, they, they sin, they, and they, they repent, and then God forgives them, and then they, 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 they live in blessedness for a little while, and then they do, the, you know, they just they go back to the thing, the same thing over and over and over. So he said to the people, look, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings, yes, before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Well, that would have been great if Saul had been obedient to the Lord. And if Saul had really been the choice, uh, the, the right choice for, for the nation of Israel. We would discover later, of course, that it was David. And don't forget that there were, two types of, there were two types of anointings. Because when Saul was anointed, he was anointed with a flask that was made by the, by the hands of man. A flask of oil was, was used to anoint Saul. When David was anointed much later, he was anointed with oil from a ram's horn. Only God can make a ram's horn. And I could assure you that there's no little tag on it that says made in China. Okay? And there they sacrifice sacrifices of peace and offering, peace offerings before the Lord. Well, we know what happens after that. So the fact it says in our text that the Lord hated them. Let's deal with that. That the Lord hated them must be taken not from the standpoint of human passion. Because God doesn't do things like we do. You know, when we hate somebody, we hate them, you know, that kind of thing. And even though we're not supposed to, we do. Sometimes we say, well, it's a godly hatred. <laughs> well, righteous indignation is one thing, but be careful about hatred. Still, it wasn't from the standpoint of human passion, but because of holy hatred of their sin. God was angry at their sin, at what they had done. The Bible actually tells us God is angry at sin every day. Every day. Angry at sin and those who commit it. Willfully, willfully to just do it in defiance of God. So it was a holy hatred of sin which, re which required punishment to be inflicted on themselves, much like it says uh, of the Lord's hatred of Esau in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where it says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Now listen, he's telling his people, I have loved you. And notice how they respond to the, to the, to the Lord. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Now, if you want a modern version of that is, when did you love us? That's how they spoke to the Lord. When did you love us? And then he said to them, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob and I hated Esau. 
And again, you have to understand, love and hate from God's perspective is not kind of like the way we are. Different. Hated Esau because of the sin that he put himself in. It was Esau that hated. Hated Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished. Edom, of course, being you know the, the, the nation that came forth out of Esau. We are impoverished, but we will return and build the best desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. And there are prophecies, by the way, that are against Edom. And there is a land of Edom even, even to this day. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea. When you go to Israel, you look across the Dead Sea and you see the mountains of Seir, Mount Seir, in Jordan. God has a plan for all of that. And your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Secondly, they, they would be driven out of God's land or God's house because of their shameful sin. And thirdly, they would no longer be loved by God, primarily because the leaders were rebellious. And notice, if you will, in, in that section in verse, um, in verse 15, there toward the end, it says, all their princes are revolters. It's, it's a play on words in the Hebrew. It's sarim soreim. Sorerim. The princes of the Sarim are the revolters. They're Sorerim. So a play on words. I mean, the, 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 the princes are, are the bad guys. I mean, they're the rebellious ones. They're, they're the revolters against God. And the people themselves would come to the conclusion that the Lord didn't love them anymore. And by the way, when God withdraws himself from blessing, may I ask you, is it God's fault? Hello? It's not God's fault, is it? Because God, what, is, what does God give? He gives blessing to those who obey, who love him and serve him with joy and with gladness and serve him daily. So, so his judgment reflected the seriousness of his judgments by withdrawing his blessings from the rebellious children. They needed to consider what they were causing the Lord to have to do to bring them to repentance and restoration and realize that the Lord loved them and wanted to bless them again. I don't know if you caught it, but most of the songs we sang tonight were about, were about the love of God toward us. That we should be so grateful for. That we have a God that, that, that loves us with an everlasting love. By the way, in Jeremiah 31, look at, look at what he says in verses 1 through 6. And remember, this is a, this is a prophecy that, that brings judgment upon the children of Judah. But it says, at that same time, saith the Lord, oh, by the way, Judah and Israel. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, whereas some would not find grace because their, their sin was so deep in, 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 that, in that false worship 
There were those who were crying out to God in the wilderness and God was finding them and giving them grace. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord has appeared of old unto me saying, Yea, I have loved thee. Listen to this. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. With loving kindness. That's mercy, folks. When you see the word loving kindness in the Old Testament, that is God's mercies. The deep mercies of God toward those who have cried out to him. Again, I will build thee, he says, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. For God to take a nation that has, that has defied God, gone to worship other idols, which is spiritual adultery, gone to do the things that they have done amongst themselves, toward each other, and, and whatnot. When he forgives them of their sin, he says, O virgin of Israel. Do you understand what that means? He has forgiven them. There will be a day when he will forgive Israel for their sins because they will then see him whom they pierced, Zechariah. The prophecy of Zechariah 14. They will see him whom they pierced. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. They'll have reason to give praise, reason to give thanks, reason to worship the Lord, reason to sing with all their hearts. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Notice, this isn't just talking about the southern kingdom, this is the northern kingdom as well. Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall eat them as common things, for there shall be a day that the watchman upon the mount Ephraim shall say, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion, unto the Lord our God. Notice, not unto Dan and Bethel, but unto Zion, where they're supposed to worship anyway. So getting back to Israel's punishments. Verse 16 then points out that the people would be stricken and made barren. Once again, we, we see this a, a repetitive thing. They would not bear children, but instead would see any offspring slain. Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. By the way, I haven't inserted something of, of great importance here. What needs to be inserted here is that he is still crying out to them to repent. There's still a window for repentance. There's still a window for repentance. Yes, there is a judgment and there is a punishment that they're going to go through because he knows they're not going to repent now. But he still gives them the opportunity. Is that not a gracious God? So verse 16 points out that the people would be stricken and made barren. They would not bear children, but instead would see offspring slain. Uh, verse 16, I think I read it. I'll read it again. Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. So because the name Ephraim means fruitful or double fruit, actually, literally, it is ironic that the once fruitful northern kingdom of Israel, signified by the name Ephraim, the symbol of fruitfulness, would be compared to a plant or a tree that was no longer capable of bearing fruit. And because of their disobedience, 
they would be rejected by God and cast out. Brings us to the last verse, verse 17. My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him. That's simple, direct, and profound. Simple, direct, and profound. My God will cast them away because they did not hearken or listen unto him, and they shall be wonders among the nations. What happened after 70 AD, after 40 years after Jesus was crucified? The nation was scattered into the four winds and the four corners of the earth. There's a very simple but insightful statement made in the epistle of James, too. Turn to James chapter 4, in verses 4 through 10. We're actually almost done, but uh, you know I, I might have to bless you with another extra few minutes. James chapter 4, verse 4 says this. And I think you'll see how the connection is drawn. And I think we've made it once already, but we'll do it one more time here. Verse 4 says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now stop and remember what I always say right here. Who is he speaking to? The church. Who is James writing to? The church. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the, fel- the friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God? Friendship with the world equals hostility with God. Friendship with the world equals hostility with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world, a friend of the world system, a friend of the cosmos as it were, is the enemy of God. Now how do you interpret that? Just like it says. Friend of the world, enemy of God. What do you do with that? Well, you quit being a friend of the world and get right with God. That's what you do with that. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Is our God a God of grace? Is our God a God of love and mercy? Is our God of tender compassion? Yes, he is. Notice, though, he says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He giveth grace unto the humble. He resists the proud. What is pride? It is the root of every sin that's ever been committed. Just go back to Genesis chapter 3. The pride of the serpent, the pride of Satan, the pride of Lucifer. God resists the proud. So what had Israel become? A prideful nation. And he was resisting the proud. But he gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God is is the admonition. Submit yourselves therefore to God. As I said earlier, how do you you interpret what he said about, (laughs) you know, friend of the world? enemy with God. There it is. So what do you do? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. May I tell you the best way to resist the devil is get into the word of God 
and get to know what God's Word says? Get to know it so that you can detect every counterfeit that there is? You know why the problem is so great in the church today? Because we put the Word of God aside. We don't read it anymore. We don't encourage people with it. Or many uh, 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 publishing companies have watered down the Word of God. Watered it down with modern translations. And what he said, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a, a study on, on, on some, some of the worst translations. There are some good translations, don't, don't get me wrong. But there's some bad translations. And the fact of the matter is some of the worst ones are the ones that some of these big, big mega churches are using today to, to, get, you know, to get some of their own little theologies uh, uh, you know, to be accepted. Man, this is where discernment comes in. And discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit that God gave to the church. The discerning of spirits. Read it in 1 Corinthians 12. Oh, i got to give you some extra time. All right, so here we go. Draw near to God, or draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Draw near unto God, and he'll draw near to you. Here's, I mean, this is, this is the blueprint for answering the question. You know, how do we go from being a friend to the world and, and being a friend, uh, or, or, or submitting to God? And not being a hater of God. Or an enemy of God. Draw near to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Folks, so there are some guys that have said, you know, the book of James, we, we, we don't know. It's, it should barely be in the Bible. Because, you know, it's telling us to cleanse ourselves and to purify our hearts and, and you know, and be afflicted and mourn and weep. But wait a minute, Jesus already died on the cross. Yes, he did. The fact of the matter is, if we don't weep over the sin that we have committed in our life, especially before we come to know Christ, when we finally realize what it, has, what it has been that has kept us from salvation and kept us blind in the world and an enemy of God, once we're released from that, we can only be released when we realize how painful our sin was, not only to put Jesus on the cross, but as we studied on Sunday, the beatings, the lashings, the scourging, the crown of thorns, and the games they played with Jesus, all of that pertains to the fact that we should be weeping over how our sin afflicts our God. He says, be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He shall lift you up. There are too many people out in, in, in the, you know, the uh, internet or you know, TV today, preachers that, you know, the, the, they, they never come to this thing about telling their people, be humble before God. So you can't, don't have to be humble. Don't be humble. I've actually heard preachers say that. You know, you're a king's kid. You, you're, you're, you're this and you're that. You're, you're, you're a little God. Wow. I don't know what Bible they're reading, but my Bible says there's only one God, and I'm not him, and you're not him either. And anybody who tries to be, 
is going to find his judgment. We humble ourselves because we know what we're all about. As much as we love to hear the words in verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to us, we, we must remember the contrasting action. If we turn away from the Lord, the Lord will turn away from us. How? He withdraws his blessing. There's a, there, there's a reason. He, he wants us to realize that, he, that we're not going to get blessed by following the world. The world, you know, may, may give us some things, but, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, it, it, it's going to fade away. The only thing that remains is the Word of God. That's all that remains. The flowers will fade, the grass will wither. But the Word of our God will last and stand forever. The worship of sex and the other gods of this world will bring the hand of God's judgment down upon those who follow the leading of their flesh rather than following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And certainly the Lord will execute judgment against all the immoral and the false worshipers of this earth and they will all be eternally separated from Him. But God's Word needs to be heeded, especially in these days and times as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got, I've got to give you these passages here and I'm going to let you go. Honestly, I will let you go. I'm not going to hold you. I'm going to jump at your feet and hold you here. But I have to give you these passages. Let's, let's begin with Matthew chapter 3. The words of John the Baptist. As he's preaching. Of, a, of his, his particular ministry and, and, and stuff. But he also brings up, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's preaching the presence of the Pharisees and scribes and all. And it says there, bring, therefore, or bring forth therefore fruits, meat, or fit for repentance. He says, you've got to bring forth fruit, meat, or fit for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. Notice how he speaks of Jesus, the Messiah. He says he has a fan in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The first time Jesus came, he didn't come to judge, but to save. When he comes again, he comes on a white horse. He comes wearing white. He's got white hair, a white beard. He's got eyes that are flames of fire. His, the, the, his tongue will, will be the, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And you'll know it's him. Matthew 13, a parable that we all should be familiar with. I wish I had more time to talk about this. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom, Matthew 13, 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Tares are just weeds. Weeds. We all love weeds in El Paso. Just love them. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. 
So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then has, has it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while we, you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together unto the har until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, the weeds, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Today the church is full of wheat, but it also has a lot of tares. And one day the tares will be gathered together. They'll be gathered and bundled up first, and they'll just be burned. But the wheat, the wheat will be put into the storehouse. Lastly, let me just say uh, the words of Jesus, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me, and, and the point of this is all to say, and we could read all of 15, but I just, we don't have time. All, the point is, we need to abide in Christ. And to abide in Christ is to die to self, is to die to the world, and to let Christ live in us. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing.